Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Thank you all for coming today. You have a great many options that you have that you can use your time on. And I and our guest appreciated greatly that you're using some of that time to come and listen to Dr. Robert DuPont. I am very confident you'll find it worthwhile. My name is Paul Larkin. I'm a fellow here at Heritage. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Robert DuPont, the author of the book, Chemical Slavery, Understanding Addiction and Stopping the Drug Epidemic. It is a terrific book and is on sale outside at the end of the event that I'm sure you could persuade Dr. DuPont to autograph it for you. His book is a scholarly and encyclopedic discussion of the causes and treatment of addiction. Now, my description of his book would come as no surprise to anyone who has ever worked with him or who has ever known him. A graduate of Harvard Medical School, Dr. DuPont has spent his 50-year career as a psychiatrist in the field of addiction medicine. He worked for the DC Department of Corrections and then the DC Narcotics Treatment Administration. He was the second drug czar under the uh, President Nixon and also worked for President Gerald Ford. He was the first director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. He is now a clinical professor of psychiatry at the Georgetown University School of Medicine and president for the Institute of Behavior and Health, where he continues his commitment to addressing addiction. Dr. DuPont has written several other books, such as The Selfish Brain, Learning from Addiction, and Bridge to Recovery, an Introduction to 12-Step Programs. He has spoken at Heritage on prior occasions, and he has always been particularly generous with his time and willing to educate me about the hazards of addiction and the ins and outs of drug policy. Let me say that listening to Dr. DuPont discuss drug policy is like listening to Mozart direct the symphony, like listening to Ted Williams discuss hitting, or like listening to Elvis talk about anything. Please join me in giving a hearty welcome to Dr. DuPont. Thank you, Paul. That is just a terrible introduction because there's only one way to go after that. <laughs> Well, I want to begin by thanking all of you for being here. I am in awe of you 
and so grateful to, to you for, for being here. Uh, it is uh, wonderful to be with so many friends and so many people that I have learned so much from and still have lots to learn from. Uh, the idea of explaining addiction or understanding addiction is a conceit that I don't even dream of. Uh, it has been my experience in the last 50 years to be a humble student of addiction, a cunning, baffling, powerful disease uh, that is uh, always uh, challenging uh, to sort through. But I wanted to go back, well, so let's say one other thing about being here at Heritage. Uh, Heritage has a long history of leadership in drug policy, particularly with Ed Meese, who is uh, a tremendous leader uh, in our field. And I also want to say with our, a time of such great uh, po politicalization and controversy uh, that I am a lifelong Democrat who has spent my life, a lot of it, working for Republicans. And one of the things that is very interesting about the drug issue, you saw in the recent uh, legislation, passed the Senate 98 to 1 on the drug issue. People say we can't get anything done in this country because of polarization. That's a pretty striking finding. The, the, the bill that established the White House Drug Office passed without a dissenting vote in the Senate in 1972. So there's a long history to this being a bipartisan issue that is very, very important to all of us. I want to begin by, by expanding the frame of what we think about. When today we think about drugs, we think about opioids. That's where the headlines are. And we think about overdose deaths. It's not that that's not important, but if you look back at our history with drugs, there's been a tendency to be substance specific. Started when I started in 1968, it was heroin uh, related to crime. We had the crack epidemic, we have methamphetamine. We've had a lot of drugs along the way to think about, but what's been missing is how does it fit together? What, what's, the, what's together? Because we look at just one drug at a time, and we right now, by just focusing on the opioids, we miss the fact, for example, 95% of the people who dry, die of an opioid overdose have other drugs present at death, an average of two to four in the opioid addict's deaths. So this has been something that's been very important. So I want to back the frame up and think about what is the drug problem? Not about the specific drug, but the larger drug problem. And when I do that, I all of a sudden get us thinking about alcohol. And I get us thinking about nicotine, as well as a lot of other drugs that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But I want to bring them into the discussion. Because there's, there's a core biology to drugs of abuse. And that has to do with the effect on the brain that is very striking. And that is there's a super stimulation of brain reward by certain very diverse chemicals. And these chemicals produce very strong reactions in the mammalian brain, not just the human brain, and in fact in many animals, that is unlike other stimulations. It's more intense. It shapes the behavior more. And one of the ways to think about this is in terms of reward 
is that people pay money for these chemicals. They want these chemicals. So the larger frame I want you to think about is recreational pharmacology. What does that mean? That means using chemicals to produce pleasure that you control yourself. That is the core issue. And what makes it much more complex and difficult to deal with is it's commercialized recreational pharmacology. Now, if, if you think about alcohol, for example, the world has been wrestling with that for thousands of years. If you look at nicotine, that came for the Western Hemisphere was uh, discovered and tobacco spread around uh, the world, but it wasn't a health problem until the invention of the cigarette. And by changing the delivery, it became a major health problem. And just for some numbers, uh, Nicotine causes 400,000 deaths, alcohol 100,000, all the overdose 72,000. So you want to have a sort of a larger frame for understanding what's going on about this. Now, what's interesting to me is we started out with a few drugs. No animal ever was exposed to these drugs. So there's no selection in the human brain for any kind of resistance to this. That also is very striking. This is a uniquely human behavior. But when you give animals drugs, they like the drugs and they'll work hard for the drugs. So the biology is there, but they don't have any access to that except people give it to them in a lab kind of a situation. So that's the issue. And what's happened in the world, we can see it happening now, is, and it never happened before, is an explosion of different chemicals that do this. It's now not just one or two, it's hundreds, potentially thousands of chemicals that we're talking about that do this. Uh, and we're also talking about, uh, when I say commercial, I don't mean just legitimate commercial. I'm talking about illicit commercial also, where money is driving the behavior to uh, make the drugs and supply them and support their use. That is what's going on, and that is what we need to see in a, in a larger context. So that's the first thing I want to talk about. When I talk about, and this book says, chemical slavery. What does that mean, chemical slavery? Well, this is something I want to focus on, particularly at the outset, is the concept of the hijacked brain. And Again, people don't understand that context is missing from what we talk about because what happens to a person who is addicted to any of these drugs is his or her thinking is changed. It's a different person who is addicted from that same physical person who is not addicted. Their priorities change, their thinking changes, their choices change. They are changed people on the basis of the addiction. It's very striking uh, to see what this is. And so much of what we do is focused on a, a rational discourse with the person who's addicted to drugs. And that doesn't work very well. I, I have a, a friend who, uh, 
uh, uh, runs a, a big drug treatment program. Uh, and I said, you know, it's very strange to me that you don't tell people who are coming into your program that they are going to have to stop drinking alcohol and using drugs for the rest of their lives. And they're going to go to AA and NA meetings and other recovery support uh, frequently for the rest of their lives. And that's what you're doing. That's your treatment. He said, if I told them that, nobody would come. That's right. They wouldn't. Because they don't want to stop. 95% of the people with substance use disorder don't think they have a problem. They don't want treatment. Here's a simple number. Drug users spend, illegal drug users, spend $100 billion a year for drugs. All the treatment for alcohol and drugs in this country, public and private, cost $34 billion a year. The drug users themselves, many of them poor, are paying three times as much for drugs as all the treatment in the country. How much do drug users pay for treatment themselves? If it isn't zero, it's pretty close. What is that telling you? I think much of the discussion we have doesn't take into consideration what the realities of the situation are. Now, there's another reality in this that I want to put in. It took me, I've been in, as Paul said, uh, this area. I, I began in this city, in Washington, D.C., and I had come here to go to NIH. I graduated, as Paul said, Harvard Medical School. I was going back to the Harvard when I came here because of the Vietnam War. And I, when at 32, my first job, first job in my life that wasn't to do with my training, what was I going to do? And I decided I wanted to work in corrections because I had worked one day a week in a prison. And I really liked the people in the prison and I wanted to help them. I know that sounds odd. But that was the choice that I made. And what I wanted to do was uh, uh, just tell, I didn't know how I was going to do that, but I went to work full time for the DC Department of Corrections right here. And what happened? We were in the middle of a crime epidemic. Lyndon Johnson had appointed a crime commission. There was a lot of interest. My contribution was to identify the role of heroin addiction in driving that crime epidemic. Uh, and that was a big deal. And then I had to learn about drug treatment. And that's how I got to meet MAT and Vincent Dole and Marie Nicewinner, all those other things that, that, that came from that. But, but it, so for 20 years I was in the field before I understood this next point. So it took me 20 years to get it. And that was what the purpose of all this was. And that is this magic word recovery. That word I really want you all to, to think about. Because it doesn't, it does mean stopping using drugs, but it doesn't just mean that. It means something more in terms of who the person is. When I talk to a person who's in recovery, it's not just that that person is well from a disease like from cancer. They are a different person in recovery than they were when they were using. And that is the, the blessing in this disease, is the 
the experience of recovery, which is um, inspiring to everybody around the person. And when you ask a person who's in recovery, what, were, what was your life like when you were using? Uh, you know, it's horrible. The person in recovery looks back on that uh, with, a, with an entirely different view because they are a changed person. And I, I tell you this, that many people in our field, I think, still do not understand what recovery is and do not understand that it is possible there are no hopeless addicts. Zero. That's the goal, to think about that. So that, that's my, now I'm just giving you my overview. That's sort of the big frame, you see. And I'm going to run through a couple of ideas, and then I'm going to be very happy to have uh, questions and comments from, from all of you. I, I would say that the book, one of the things about the book that uh, distinguishes it is it's a combination of two different objectives. One is understanding the phenomenon, understanding addiction. Uh, but the other, and including a global, all over the world, but it also is talking about individually, dealing with one person at a time, one family at a time, what's going on. And both of those are really very important uh, perspectives. Okay, now I want to talk about this question that uh, dominated me uh, at the turn of the century, the year 2000. Uh, I uh, had already been in the field uh, a long time, and my question was to myself, how good could outcomes be? Uh, you know, we, we have a, a uh, uh, we, we've decided that relapse is a part of the disease. That's an interesting thing to decide, to, to define the disease by relapse, but we've done that. And I thought, well, how good could outcomes be from this disease? And I had an answer in my own practice. And that was that I was uh, working with a number of addicted physicians who were in the physician's health programs. And I watched what happened to them. And it was pretty darn inspiring. They got well. They didn't relapse. Uh, and so I recruited my friend Tom McClellan, and we did the first national study of the physician's health programs in this country and looked at what did they do and how did it work out. And what happened was they made recovery, not relapse, the expected outcome. They made the treatment programs work. And they did it by care management that is quite striking. A physician who has an alcohol or drug problem, and by the way, half of the physicians, it's alcohol, a third of them it's opiates, and a sixth is everything else. So it's mostly alcoholics and opiate addicts who are these physicians. Uh, and and the, 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 we, the, so the question is, what happens to them when they, when they, when they get uh, uh, into this? They are evaluated for whether they have the problem. There's an assessment made of the seriousness of the problem. If it isn't serious, they're not in the physician's health program. But if it's a serious disorder, they are. And when they're in then, to keep their licenses, the physician's health programs have no penalty. They don't do any penalizing. They offer a, a sanctuary for the physicians from the medical boards. That's what they do. 
on condition that they comply with the program. That's the deal they sign. And what happens then is they're, generally speaking, residential treatment, often for a month, but sometimes IOP, might be for 10, 12 weeks, but they're five years, they're drug tested with consequences for any relapse, and they have to go to recovery support. Most of them, that means 12 steps, but not only 12 steps, and they have to go at least three times a week, and most of them go more than that. Okay, and what happens, a simple number, 78%, and they're randomly tested. Every day they wake up for five years, they're randomly decided whether they need to be tested or not for alcohol and drugs. Any missed test or any positive test, they're pulled out of their practice and back into a treatment activity. Uh, and if it continues, they'll lose their licenses, and some do lose their licenses. But 78% of them in five years never had a single missed test or a positive test. Think about that. And they have terrific outcomes and going back to their practice. And people said to me, Bob DuPont, if that's because they got a sword over their heads. What happens when that happens? So we did a follow-up study. What happens five years after the last test? 96% are in recovery. And we asked them, what mattered to you? What made a difference to you about that? The number one thing that made a difference to them was their participation in recovery support, the AANA meetings. The second most, pop, the most important uh, uh, for them was the treatment, which was very short, but very important uh, in their lives. And further down was the drug testing, although that was obviously a big part of this. Now, that inspires a different way of thinking about the problem. And what it suggests is that it's not just the disease and the treatment, it's the context in which that happens. And what is that context? Does that context demand no use? Or is that context permissive of continued use? That's a big issue, and we'll talk about that. I'm gonna just jump now to these final points and then I'm gonna open it up to you. Uh, first of all, uh, the, in the terms of treatment, there is a huge problem in the country about what treatment is trying to do. And there's lots of different definitions. Uh, and I'm not against any of them. But I want to have the capstone for treatment evaluation being lasting recovery. You can see it. Everybody in the country sees lasting recovery. We all have people we know in our communities who are in lasting recovery. That's where we want to get. And every treatment should be evaluated on its ability to move people into lasting recovery. And it's not going to be 100%. Nobody, the physician's health program is not 100%. But if we had that, then the programs would compete on their ability to do that. And that would force them to think about what happens after they walk out the door, which is exactly what has to happen right now. So the big idea in treatment is evaluate treatment on its ability to produce lasting recovery. And if a person's on methadone and he's not using alcohol and drugs, he's in recovery. I don't have a problem with that. They don't have to be off the medication. They can be taking naltrexone. They can be taking buprenorphine. That's fine. But they have to be drug-free in terms of what the addiction is. 
So that's really important. So that's number one. And the, the treatment, the battles that go on now between MAT and, uh, and uh, drug-free treatment are fratricidal and hurt both sides. We don't need that. They can come together around that goal. And that means the drug-free programs have to be open to using medication. And it means the MAT programs have to include recovery support right from the beginning. Those are tough things for both sides to do, but that's the way you end that war. The second one is prevention. If we're confused on treatment, we're really confused on prevention. What are we preventing? This drug or that drug? We're preventing drunk driving. I mean, prevention is a word that means whatever you think it means. And that's not good. That's not good. Even the word drug-free, what does that mean? What do you call a drug? These, this confusion in prevention is parallel to the confusion in treatment. And from my point of view, it needs to end. What is the goal of, of prevention? It is for kids to grow up not using any addicting drug. No alcohol, no nicotine, no marijuana. Those are the three gateway drugs. No drugs. And people say, well, that's unrealistic. And we did a study to show it isn't unrealistic. In 1983, 3% of American high school seniors had never in their lifetimes used any alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, or other drugs. 3%. Last year, it was 26%. That's an amazing change. And it was steady throughout. It wasn't just a leap. It was every year was bigger than it was the year before for 30 years. People didn't know that. And then we, the other question is, in the last 30 days, how high school seniors, what percentage have not used any at all in 30 days? It was 16% in 1983. Now it's 51%. This is very good. This is a realistic trend that is positive and can be reinforced with prevention messages that are clear about what the goal is. And it doesn't mean if they have used, they're hopelessly lost. The goal is the same for people who've used. Stop using. So I think that that's really important for, for us to, 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 uh, uh, to talk about. Now, I want to end here with going back to, to what we do. I, I told you at the beginning that I started out in corrections in this city. One of the stupidest things we do in drug policy is to say the choice is between prison or treatment. Are you a criminal justice guy or a health guy? That's the sort of question. That's a really bad way to think about the problem. We, the country from a public, I'm a physician, I'm a public health guy. I need, we need an effective criminal justice system to deal with the drug problem. To do two things. One is to reduce the supply. If you had wide open supply with no law enforcement, the country would be a disaster in terms of that. So supply reduction is really important, but it's more than that. 
the people in the criminal justice system, the people I went there to help, two-thirds of them, three-quarters of them, have substance abuse problems. We can use the criminal justice system as an engine of recovery. It can help people, people who are particularly in need of that help. It's a friend of public health, not an enemy of public health. So we really need to, to have that very clearly uh, in, our, in our minds. But we also need other institutions. I'm very interested in healthcare. Right now, addiction treatment is siloed and it's brief. There's addiction problems in every medical specialty, everywhere in medicine, because it's all over in the population. And it needs to, the care of that chronic, uh, often fatal disease, needs to be integrated in the entire healthcare, just the way diabetes is or hypertension is. And it needs to be lifelong, not just an episode, but recognizing that person's vulnerability every time he sees the doctor. How are you doing with your recovery program? How are you doing in terms of drug and alcohol use? Just like how are you doing with your exercise program? It's a normal part of dealing with it. So getting healthcare. But my last point is this, and that's the family. Families see addiction. Not quickly, it's often very much of a challenge, but they do see it. And as it gets worse, they get engaged with it. And they feel overwhelmed. And I think to be able to educate families about their responsibilities for identifying the problem, not just for getting help, although that's important, that's very important, but beyond getting help, using help, Making sure that that goes on over time is really very important. So the idea that the, the, what we want to tell families is disengage with love, that's the Al-Anon line. Uh, yeah, that's fine, but that's not good enough. They gotta engage with love to support recovery to deal with this problem. At least that's where I am. Well, I'm uh, in here, I wanna just tell you two things. One is how proud I am of the book. You'll see all these things uh, in here. I hope find them useful. And then the other thing I would like to, to make sure you get is to introduce a couple of people uh, who are here from, from IBH. I'd like to have Corinne Shea, where is she? Sort of stand up so everybody sees who Corinne Shea is. That's my alter ego and I'm very happy to have you here. Uh, Cassie Fowler, where is Cassie? Back there in the corner. Uh, and uh, Caroline Dupont, is she here somewhere? I think, no, maybe not. Well, she will be, and anyway. Okay, I'll end there, thank you very much. We'll, we'll now have questions from the audience, so Bob, I'll invite you back up yeah. here in just a second. Let me just say, uh, raise your hand, and someone will bring you a microphone. Please say who you are, and please ask a question. And by that, I mean something that ends in a question mark, and, <laughs> and not something that is a speech and then says, do you agree or disagree? So please, go ahead, raise your hands, and I'll call on you. This woman here first. 
Hi, Paula. Hi. Um, thank you so much. Um, my question is, if you were drug czar now, <laughs> or if you were Surgeon General, yeah. or if you were uh, head of the policy in the White House, what would you do that is not being done now? <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, I want to make a claim. Uh, somebody may dispute me on this, but I think I'm right about this. I think I'm the only person in the world who has known all 17 White House drug czars personally. I think I'm the only person who's known all 14 heads of DEA, and of course all five heads of NIDA. That, that, uh, that DEA and NIDA were started in 1973. I was in the White House when those programs started. I was the head of NIDA, and I knew the first head of DEA very well. So I've seen all these people, and I understand, you asked the question, it's as if they can ma wave a magic wand and make things happen. That wasn't exactly my experience there. So uh, I think there's a presumption that they can change things by what they want to do. Uh, and I don't think that's right. Uh, I, Jim Carroll is the acting head of ONDCP, and I think he's a, a really good guy. I, I've met him and I like him. We have the previous acting head of ONDCP under Donald Trump here, Rich Baum, over here, raise your hand, Rich, who did a terrific job too. So uh, I, I think that we get good leadership. Basically, I, I have felt, I've liked all the people and felt all of them did a good job. Uh, so I'm not going to pick favorites. But if, what I want to do, well, I guess I'd say one thing. There haven't been many of them who haven't known what I wanted to do. Uh, let's put it that way. I've had access to tell things and things. And I think we've moved along. I, as I say, I think what's happening right now is this is an historic opportunity. Uh, we have two issues that make it front page news, uh, and that is uh, the overdose death in opioids and the legalization of marijuana. Uh, and I think we need leadership that actively discourages recreational pharmacology, reducing use of all of those drugs, and promotes recovery and meaningful prevention. That would be my agenda. I am Tara Handron. I'm with the Karen Treatment Centers. Um, Dr. Dupont, thank you so much for today and, and just for all of your knowledge and research. I mean, you're incredibly important to those of us who work in this field. You mentioned prevention. Yeah. And how can we, so like we have prevention programs yeah. in schools, you know, and we're doing it in high schools. And I think many centers are even providing programs at younger ages. What else can we be doing, though, to help young people not reach for that first drink or drug at a young age when their brain is not finished developing? You know, what more can we be doing as parents, as teachers, as just adults in the society? And, and given the fact that you're a psychiatrist, I mean, I'm sure you've had children in your practice. Like, how do we arm kids better so that there's not even that, like, that desire yeah. to check it out? Yeah. Well, I think it's, the term experimenting with drugs is an amazing thing. Think about this. It, 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 most of us think that's normal for kids to experiment, right? But it isn't normal. Think about this. Let's think about, we say, every time you get in a car, you put on a seatbelt, right? Let's say a kid said, I'm going to experiment with not wearing a seatbelt. 
What would you think about that? Does that sound, what would happen if they did experiment with it? I think they'd find it pretty convenient. They could go all their lives and never had a problem with it, right? That's the reality, but we don't say that. We have a different standard for drugs that is weird. We don't articulate the standard because everybody doesn't do it. So we don't ever say it. It's really strange. We can say, don't drink sugary sodas. It's not hard for pediatricians to say that. But don't drink alcohol, they won't say that. They won't say it. Don't smoke marijuana, they won't say that. It's really hard. And what has to happen is people who care about kids have to articulate the goal, recognizing that not everybody's gonna, but at least they hear it. Like they hear about sugary sodas and exercise and seat belts and helmets on the bike. It's a, that simple to do that. And what's happening now, Tara, in the prevention programs is the message is completely confused about what prevention is. Is it don't get drunk? Is it don't drive drunk? You know, get drunk and take a bus? I mean, what is the message? And, and, and it also needs to start early, before they're teenagers, so they understand what you're doing, why you're doing it. And the parents are the most important. The parents need to be armed with this message and uh, uh, enabled and uh, encouraged to be very forthright about it, just like other health messages. Uh, and as Tara brought up, the vulnerability of the adolescent brain is unique. It's not an accident, it's biology that that's where this disease starts. Uh, and that gives an urgency to it, to protect their brains. Uh, Bertha Madras here has a great mantra. Uh, it's not drug prevention only, it's brain protection. And that's right. Uh, to do that. And, and I think if we can just think clearly, a lot of our, we can get through that. But it's embarrassing. When you go out there and tell somebody that, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. You see, when you have the courage to even say it. But it needs to not be seen as crazy. It needs to be seen as helping kids and explain that to them. Does that mean every kid who smokes marijuana is going to fail out of school and uh, become a a recluse or a failure? No, there are kids who smoke marijuana a lot and do very well in life. Just like there are a lot of people who don't wear seatbelts and they never have a problem. But you don't want to run that risk. I had my younger daughter, Caroline, when she was growing up, she said she didn't want to, she didn't want to try a cigarette. And I said, why is that? She said, I might like it. <laughs> that's right, that's the right answer. When you say experimenting. The worst thing that could come from that experiment is you like it. God bless you if you get sick the first time and decide, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. And people do that. Other questions? Bob, there are two quick questions. They're both on reduction to practice. Because my feeling is that dragging the medical community into this domain has been accelerated because of the prescription opioid problem. Yes, yes. But it has been decelerating a little bit because of the advent of fentanyl. Yes. How do we get the medical community far more engaged? Because I think their standards 
and their practices would enormously educate conventional, the conventional 14,000 treatment centers we have in this country. And the second issue is how do we re recruit parents? Because parents are critical in this whole issue. All right, let me introduce you to Bertha Madras, who's my teacher about brain biology and addiction and so much else. Uh, and she was the deputy director of ONDCP uh, also and, and started ESPERT, which is one of the newest things that's happened in medicine. This is the queen of ESPERT. The, the, uh, I want to go back to for something Bertha brought up about the, uh, the opioid issue. You know, the way we've gotten to this point is by uh, focusing on the uh, perfidy, the uh, uh, dishonesty of the pharmaceutical companies in terms of underplaying the risks of it. And the doctors for overprescribing uh, pain medicine. And I want you to know that I'm not defending the pharmaceutical companies or the doctors, but I would like to have some perspective on what it is that happens, and that is not the whole story. That is a part of the story. It's an important part of the story, and getting it right is really important, and they've got a long way to go to get it right. But it isn't the whole story, and you see that Bertha was talking about fentanyl. Uh, the future of opioids is in uh, the illicitly uh, produced uh, synthetic drugs uh, that are uh, more potent, and, uh, and uh, what's happened now with the drug supply system is more different drugs than ever before, higher potency than ever before, lower price than ever before, and more convenient delivery. Does that sound like a prescription for a disaster? That's where we are. That's the reality uh, that's happening right now. Uh, that people don't understand. And I worry that just going after the pharmaceutical companies uh, and the doctors misses that. But Bertha's larger point was, how do we get doctors interested in it? And I think the main reason they're not interested now is two things. One is they underestimate the prevalence of it. So they don't think about how widespread it is everybody's practice, not just people in addiction medicine. So that's the first thing. And second of all, they feel it's hopeless. They have seen people fail and they just give up. What they need to see is people in recovery. They need to see what that is and that that is possible for every single addicted person, no matter what their social class, no matter what their education, it's possible for everybody. And our job and medicine's job uh, is to help them get there. So that's my advice. It's uh, not simple. Uh, but doctors uh, and healthcare, well, our friend Tom McClellan says, Bob, stop talking about doctors. You don't get what's happening. It's not the doctor, it's the, uh, the, uh, the, the medical system. So much healthcare now is not delivered by doctors. It's the medical team, it's true. It really, we're talking about the medical team. We're talking about healthcare, not just doctors. And that medical team needs to be engaged in both prevention and treatment, and, and have hope on both fronts. Because right now they feel hopeless about prevention and they feel hopeless about treatment.
so a, a number of states with uh, medical marijuana programs or medical marijuana legalization have proposed adding uh, opioid use disorder to the list of qualifying conditions for a medical marijuana card. Mm -hmm. Do you comment on that? You can almost guess, Garth, what I think about that. And I think everybody else here here could too. You know, one of the things that's very interesting is that the more people use marijuana, the more they use opiates, not the less. The more people use marijuana, the more they use alcohol. The more marijuana, the more they use nicotine. All these are linked. They are not alternatives. If not, I'm an alcoholic, I'm not smoking dope, and that'll get rid of my alcoholism. Good luck with that idea. Well, that's the same thing about opioids. The idea that somehow adding another drug uh, to be used in recreational pharmacology, because that's what it really amounts to. You know, we talk about medical marijuana, Garth brought up. How many medicines does your doctor recommend to you that are smoked? Let's start with that. Is that a little unusual? And then how many medicines do you have where the doctor says, take it for anything you have? It, you know, it works for everything. You got a lot of medicines like that? I don't know many medicines like that. And then, then the doctor says, and use it as much as you like. Do, is that a medical approach? I don't think so. You know, there's a dose. There's a specificity. Medical marijuana is not specific. You go in to your medical marijuana store, and you've got a thousand choices. Do you like it with this? Do you like it to take it with that? Do you have medicines like that? I don't know medicines like that. It's a, whole, it's a total fraud. Uh, in my view. And, and it's not that I don't think cannabinoids might be useful someday. Great. But if they are, we'll have specific cannabinoids with specific doses for specific illnesses. This is not what's going on now. Uh, you see that. It's, it's, it's just a, a sham and a fraud. I mean, I feel sorry. I understand people are sincere about it. I'm not questioning that. But uh, it's a stalking horse uh, for the full recreational pharmacology. Uh, and that's clearly where it's going, and it's not done uh, in, a, in a medical fashion. The people who want to do that don't want to have cannabinoids. They don't want to have specific doses. They don't want to have the FDA approval. That's going to slow down what they want to do. Well, to me, that tells me all I need to know uh, uh, about that. And the thing that's happened in marijuana that's so striking is the emergence of an industry with billions of dollars promoting it. Remember I called it commercialized, recreational pharmacology. The commercialization is crucial to the spreading of the behavior because it justifies the behavior and enables it. When we just had smoked dope in the pre-legalization, think about what you had and now think about what's going on in Colorado. The gummy bears, the, you know, putting it CBD in Coca-Cola. I mean, the whole thing is bizarre. But it, it, is, it is the development of the commercialization of, what shall I call it, a fantasy. Uh, and, and there's a lot of money at stake. A lot of money at stake. And it buys a lot of opinions and a lot of airtime uh, that's going on. But I don't want you to think that it's just marijuana. Because right after marijuana are the hallucinogens coming on the same path, the same arguments, medical use and then uh, recreational use. Uh, and then it's every other drug, including fentanyl, 
is on that path. And, and uh, the, the policy should be to discourage use. We have that clear, use the tobacco model. We've done a pretty good job of discouraging tobacco use, especially lately is going on, but we need to do that with all the drugs. And I don't hear a lot of the people who are promoting legalization of marijuana discouraging use. I don't hear them talking about uh, the people who are really are just sitting on their sofas smoking dope all day. A lot of people like that. Do they ever talk about those people? I don't think so. And I think that's what we need to do. Other comments? Thanks, for, uh, Bob, for writing the book. It's a great resource for all of us in the field. Uh, so I had uh, two questions surrounding um, uh, sanctions, uh, for particularly for those in treatment yeah. in the justice system, either yeah. in a drug court or in HOPE or uh, some other system. Um, and I was hoping you might explain a bit about the utility of having a sanction after a positive drug test. But then my, the second part of the question is there is a fair bit of resistance for people who have a relapse and a positive drug test uh, with the consequence being jail time, right, criminal right. justice sanction. And I wonder whether uh, if we want those models of hope and drug court to thrive, whether we need to maybe move away from jail and think of some other consequences uh, that would have the same impact, but maybe maybe have the uh, more acceptance in the broader community. Thank you very much, Rich Baum, who's a real hero in the field and a, and a very, very close friend. Uh, you see, when you jumped right from the criminal justice system to jail or for prison, uh, that's a problem. But that's mentally, that's where it all goes. It comes down, if you have a sanction, now we're talking about prison. Okay. Rich mentioned three programs, uh, drug courts, HOPE, uh, and 24-7 uh, sobriety. Those are wonderful programs. None of them have prison as an outcome for initial drug test, the positive. They all, they, none of those programs want you in prison at all. So they don't have a one strike and you're in prison. None of them have that. But what they do have is at the end of the line, after they've tried over and over again, for people who are there because of a criminal penalty, they have committed, very few people are in prison just for drug possession. They're there for other crimes. And they're there on a conditional release. I mean, that's what we're talking about. They are out, they, uh, they have a, been convicted of a crime, and now they're in community supervision. And I think it's important that at the end of the day, there is a sanction there. You want it to be, but... Uh, Bill Clinton uh, said about uh, abortion, uh, infrequent. Uh, th that's right. You don't want to use that. And that's one of the problems with hope. When hope was extended, some of the judges who were doing it were very quick to send people to prison. And that made it very difficult for it to work. But Judge Am, who started it, boy, you had to work on it to get into prison. He did not want to put you in prison. I can tell you the PHPs don't want to take your license. Th that's a last step that they want to do. And people who want to uh, impeach the criminal justice approach want to take away that last step. And I don't want to take away the last step. I want it to be there. Uh, but I want it to be uh, uh, rare. And I want to have lots of opportunities. And I don't want somebody who's just in for possession 
to do that with. That would be very unusual in any event. And there's a, some underlying criminal offense that we're talking about that's got the person in that condition. Uh, and the other thing is, go to a drug court uh, graduation and see the, how excited that is the people. You know, that doing it right, that's the thing about recovery. Uh, these physicians, by the way, all of the, I'm not all, virtually all of the physicians hated the fact that they were sent to the PHPs. They didn't think they needed to be there. And when we went five years after and asked them what they thought about it, saved my life, saved my family, saved my career, best thing that ever happened to me. That's the transition from the user's brain to the recovery brain. And you can see that in people all around you. Uh, when they're using, it's a denial of the problem. The problem is my wife. You know, she has crazy ideas. That's how I'm here. Or, you know, that it was a mistake I made one day. I don't, won't do it again. All these kind of rationalizations to continue the use. But that's the addicted brain. That's the hijacked brain. And it's not easy for us to overcome that. We look somebody in the eye and the person says this. We think we're talking to that person. You're talking to the drug. It's hard to get that idea across. I understand that. This woman right there. Yes, my name is Jan Brown. Well, wait a second, Jan. I want to get this so that the, the, the vast television audience can hear this. <laughs> so my name is Jan Brown. I'm a woman in long-term recovery. Uh, it means I haven't used drugs or alcohol for 31 years. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm also the executive, the uh, chairperson of Faces of Voices of Recovery. So my question is, how do a we- A wonderful organization that's changing the way America thinks about recovery. Thank you, Jan. Absolutely, thank you. So how do we mobilize that 23 million people who are in recovery so that we can do a better job, you know, letting the medical system know that, you know, people do recovery being that hope that you were talking about that, that is missing? I, I think by having them, the, the, the story of recovery, folks, I can see that the, the, the hook is coming very soon, so I got to get these last couple of things in here. The story of recovery, everybody's recovery, including Jan's recovery, anybody's recovery, has three parts. Okay, the first part is what was your life like when you were using? That's very compelling to listen to that story, what that was like, what were you experiencing? Uh, uh, what, what happened to you? Okay, that's the first question. What your life was like when you were using. And the second question is, what happened to get you to stop? That's pretty dramatic when you ask people what it is. It's not casual. It's not going to be, oh, I was walking down the street one day and I had this idea and I think I would get into recovery. Uh-uh. It was, as one of my friends said, it was a baseball bat to the head and probably more than once that got the person to stop. And then the third part is, what's your life now? Like now, not using. I've never heard one of these stories that isn't inspiring. Uh, and, and what they do is they not only give you hope, but in addition to that, they show how it happened. And one of the things about recovery is it's not finished. It's always a process. That's why you say you're in recovery rather than recovered. And that's because the risk of relapse goes on forever. Goes on forever. And it's funny, when I say that about drugs, people have a hard time who don't know about drugs, think that's very weird. 
uh, one of the weirder things that I said to think about that. But it's funny to me that with respect to cigarette smoking, everybody knows if you were a smoker and you stopped, smoking one cigarette can be catastrophic. I used to have an experiment when I would do it, and I'd give a talk like this, and I would say, okay, I'm going to do a little experiment here. Uh, and uh, I tell them it's a thought experiment. I'm not going to really do it. But the thought experiment is, okay, I'm going to stop for a moment here, and we're going to give everybody a cigarette, everybody here a cigarette. And I'm going to pause for three minutes while you smoke the cigarette. And then we're going to talk about what that was like. Okay, so what happens to the people, those of you who don't smoke cigarettes and never did, were addicted to it, you're going to be sick. Your eyes are going to water. You're going to cough. You're going to say, what kind of a tormentor is this guy? And then the people who are current smokers, what do they think? They think, gee, that DuPont is not as bad a guy as I thought he was. He's more understanding. He understands what is really going on. But those are not interesting. What's interesting is what happens to the former smokers. And I had a lady come up to me after I did this one time, and she said, that was a horrible talk. I said, what do you mean? She said, that experiment you talk about brought back to me how hard it was for me to stop. And even talking about it like that was a threat to me because if I went back to smoking, I think I would kill myself. Do you understand that, doctor? Kill myself. Okay, that's the person who's really interesting in that experiment. And that shows just how dangerous that is. But we accept that. That's the, everybody agrees with that. But boy, to get that across about alcohol or drugs, it is very tough in the general population. And the experts, the more intellectual people are, the harder it is for them to get it. I swear to God, uh, there's a correlation between sophistication and not getting that. A positive correlation. So you can count on the Atlantic Monthly, for example, for a regular article to say that the idea that people have to stop is old-fashioned. It's a religion, Dr. DuPont is selling. He's not selling science. God bless him, that's what they say. Uh, and there's a lot of people say that. Yeah. Well, I think we have time for one more question. Oh, good. This fellow in the front here. Thank you for waiting. Hi, uh, Jacob James Rich, Reason Foundation. And I'm curious about uh, medication-assisted treatment. Oh, yes. And what is the advantage of using buprenorphine instead of, I'm sorry, what is the advantage of using buprenorphine or methadone instead of heroin itself, since the former also right. cause euphoria? Okay. That, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. I, I uh, have the benefit of knowing Marie Neiswinder and Vincent Dole very personally. When I went to New York, I stayed in Vincent Dole's apartment. When he came to Washington, he can, had dinner at my home. He's the one who started methadone. And how he did it was very interesting. He had a, uh, a, a research lab, a research program where he had uh, inpatients stayed there so they would not go anywhere. But he tried heroin and he gave them heroin to start with and saw what happened to them when they had access to heroin. They just wanted more heroin. There was never enough. And they stayed focused on the heroin. Uh, so we did it for months, and they kept doing it for months. And he decided this is not a promising strategy. So, and by the way, at that time, not like today, nobody knows what the British system was, but in the 70s, 60s, that was the alternative to America's, that the British doctors were giving them heroin. 
And uh, so when I started this, that was the, the uh, brilliant idea was to do that. Okay, we don't talk about that much anymore. But anyway, so what he did was use methadone, which was invented during the Second World War by the Germans because they didn't have access to opium to make heroin. And so it's a synthetic, it's like fentanyl, it's a synthetic opioid, has an opioid effect uh, like that. And the difference is, unlike heroin, methadone is orally absorbed. You don't have to shoot it, you can swallow it. And second of all, it has a half-life, instead of a few hours, of 24 or 36 hours. So what that meant, you could take one dose in the day. You can't do that with heroin. You're going to have heroin five or six times, seven times a day to use heroin. You're not going to do it once a day. It's impossible. It's like having once a day cigarettes. The duration of action is, doesn't let you do that. So the advantage of methadone is that you've got orally effective long duration of action, not magic. It's just clear. It's science. It's simple. And when he did that, when he got the dose up around 100 milligrams or a little higher, they stopped asking for any more. And they were interested in going out and getting a job and doing other things. That, it's what he observed. That's how we got methadone maintenance, on, on that pharmacology. Uh, so it really is. Now, you, you made a comment, though, that was really important. And that is, you can get the same high from methadone that you get from heroin. But... You've got to inject it. You're not going to get that orally. It's too slow absorption uh, to, to do that. People are going to want to uh, snort it or shoot it. Uh, and that was a big problem. When I, when I started the methadone program in Washington, we had a lot of problems with diverted uh, methadone, including overdose deaths. Uh, and it, we, we had to learn slowly to make it so you can't inject it. Now everybody does that uh, kind of thing. But it was the pharmacology. And the same thing is true about pharmacology, about buprenorphine. It really is better because it's less likely to produce an overdose death. That's, it, it, there is illicit use of buprenorphine. Mostly, though, not the, it is, can be used to get high. But it's given in a way that you can't shoot it because they put naloxone in it with the uh, buprenorphine. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, uh, it doesn't produce overdose deaths. Those are big advantages to buprenorphine and that. So I don't think it's just, uh, I don't know, a fantasy uh, or, a, or a, a prejudice, an irrational prejudice that gets us here. And I, I am, want to make it clear at the end, and I'm so happy to have your question, uh, uh, because I am a fan of medication-assisted treatment. People will hear me and say, oh, no, you're the guy from the drug-free programs. You don't really no." My DNA includes medication-assisted treatment. But, but, the reality is in medication-assisted treatment that most of the people leave very quickly. That is the reality. For methadone, the, the average duration is six to nine months. For buprenorphine, it's three to six months. This is a lifetime problem. Now, there are people who stay on buprenorphine forever and methadone, absolutely. But the vast majority, and the other thing is that many people who are on MAT continue to use alcohol and drugs. This is not good. It needs to be identified as, as a problem. And I'll just end with, with a little vignette. When I, when I started the, NT, the program here in Washington, 
I had a group of ex-addict advisors. They were wonderful people. My friends, uh, I was very close to these people. And one of them named Nat Turner, who was a kind of famous guy in Washington, a public figure he became, and a wonderful person and a good friend. He was retiring from the government. He'd gone to work at the government when I was working at the government. But I'd long left, and I went back for his retirement party. And I asked some names of the people who were in our group. We had about 20 people at the time. So I went through the names, dead, 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 dead. And I said, you know, what happened? Did they go back on heroin? Because they were all heroin addicts. He said, no. They all died of alcoholism. All of them. All of them. All of them. And I said, Nap, how come they died and you didn't? And he said, Bob, that's really simple. I went to meetings and they didn't. I'll end there. Thank you. Let me thank Dr. DuPont for his very wise remarks. But I would be remiss if I didn't also thank the people in this audience who are trying to pursue the same sort of goal. There is no more noble undertaking in life than to try to save lives. And you don't have to be a soldier or a doctor to do that. If you help make lives better for others and help keep them from going off a cliff, you have helped save lives and you're doing God's work in the process. So thank you, Dr. DuPont. And thank all of you who have come here today or have watched on TV who are committed to the same goal. With that, we are adjourned. And before you get to that, I want to thank Paul Larkin. This meeting is because of Paul Larkin, and I'm very grateful to him. Thank you, Paul. Thank you.